This message was presented at the DYC 2013 conference, Before Man and Angels, in Orlando, Florida. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.dycweb.org. How many of you are here for the first time and we're not at the first session? Wow, okay, we've got a lot of new people in here. It looks like some people lost their seats. Um, hey, this is how it works in a small room, but praise the Lord, we are all here together. We, we are one session down and, uh, and, and five more to go. And I want to give you a little bit of a clue as to what you just walked into so that you can uh, understand what we have done so far. And we're not going to repeat everything we have done, uh, but praise the Lord, what I can say is almost everything that we are covering here today and tomorrow and Sabbath in this room is on the DVDs that we have available at our booth. Um, Chad has a ministry, I have a ministry, we both have booths down in the exhibit hall. So if you're going to miss one of the sessions, or you missed part one, or you want to share this information, and, and also, frankly, we're not getting to everything that's on the DVDs as well. So I would, I would, I would uh, insist that you, that you get them for, for the people that you love who are struggling with media addiction. And, and our booth is called Belt of Truth Ministries. Belt of Truth Ministries. You'll see the media on the brain material there. Um, so that's the, the relationship between this seminar and the DVDs is we're covering some of the stuff in the DVDs, but we don't have time to get to it all. By the way, while we're talking about, about booths, I want, to, I want to submit to you an awesome replacement for our bad media. I, I hope that we don't, you know, fear media. I mean, I've got an iPhone in my pocket that's a powerful tool, right? Media is a tool. And Chad and Fadia Cruiser have produced a documentary series called Scripture Mysteries. And they do other films as well. I'm always talking about Scripture Mysteries because it's such a great evangelistic outreach method. Uh, you hand somebody a DVD who may not read a book, and they will come, come into contact with present truth. So get down to Anchor Point Films uh, booth as well. And, and be sure to pick up that, even though we're not covering their material today. But I'm just blessed to have Chad join me for the Media on the Brain seminar, which I've been sharing for about the past year and a half. Now, what is coming over the next few days? Uh, first of all, we covered part one, TV in your brain, the good news. And Chad gave you some good news about how the Bible can bring a positive effect to your mind. Uh, we also talked about what TV is doing to our brains. Uh, it's, it's mostly not good when it comes to this theatrical entertainment. But right now we're going to do Meet the High Priests of a New Religion. We're going to look at how media control and manipulation is taking place in our society today. This afternoon, after lunch, for session three, we're going to be looking at the topic of music. This is a hard one to talk about for me personally. You'll hear my personal testimony on music, a very brief, uh, just, just two-minute blip on, on some of my background in that personally, and some stories about Chad and I growing up together outside of the church. We, we both came into the church later in life, and we're going to talk about this very, very important issue of music this afternoon. Immediately after that, addicted and immersed. We're going to be talking about the brain and addictions and how addictions work in the brain. And specifically, we're going to take on one important media addiction out there, and that's video gaming. If you missed the first session, we pointed out how video gaming is an official addiction now in the psychiatry community. And so come for the afternoon session to gain a little bit more of an understanding about why you can't help but do that thing you do, whatever it is. Uh, part five tomorrow, the end of boredom. We're going to talk about more about the brain, uh, the pleasure receptors of the brain, how we have gotten an imbalance in our brains in regards to the pleasures of this world. And then on Sabbath, do not miss this one. 
Oh, it's a small room, but we'll see if you can get there early for that one. Preparing the brain for the final controversy. We're in a conference right now where we're looking at the topic of the great controversy, and a lot of it takes place right here. The, the issues in, in, in my own soul, in my own life, the frontal lobe, which we talked about last session, that, li that pesky limbic system, which we talked about last session, about how it just, it brings us into more temptation, more sin, and how can we overcome? And Chad's going to bring some powerful information from that. And we're doing a sort of a tag team thing all the way through. Um, Chad, did I leave anything out as the matters of uh, business there? No? All right. Well, we can, we can begin. Oh, there, by the way, the DVD set for the media on the brain, um, and, and we, can, we can hit the recorder at this point. Because we're going we're gonna to get started. Um, the Media on the Brain DVD set, of course, is available. If you're listening to this on the audio, you'll want to go to beltoftruthministries.com and you can access it there. For the folks here at GYC, we do have a booth, again, if you just walked in. And you can pick up the DVDs there to get the rest of the material that we are not covering here today. So let's begin with... A, a clip, and I wanted to show this to you last time. We ran out of time, but this still very much relates to the topic of TV and your brain. And so this is Dr. Dimitri Kostakis. Before I hit play, I want to begin us with a, a word of prayer as we have our session. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, we thank you again for this privilege of being together to hear from you. Lord, I pray that you would set aside all of our own preferences and opinions about things and and set, set your speakers aside that we might not be a stumbling block. But, Lord, may your voice be heard. We just pray that people would be able to hear you and make decisions in these last days. In Jesus' name, amen. Dr. Dimitri Christakis, a research scientist at the Seattle Children's Hospital, will share, share with you some things. I am a pediatrician, a researcher, and a parent, and I became those things in that order. And the reason the sequencing is important is because even though I was a doctor who took care of children for a while, and I was a researcher who studied ways to keep them healthy, it wasn't until I became a parent that I got interested in, some might even say obsessed with, uh, early learning. Now why do these early experiences matter? The typical newborn brain is 333 grams. And in the first two years of life, it actually triples in size. It's an extraordinary period of brain growth, uh, unparalleled over the life course. And you can see that here. Here is both brain growth over the lifespan, and you can see uh, how steep the rise is early on. And it continues to, to grow until about age 20. And I'll let you guys in the audience find yourselves over on the right there and see why you had such a hard time finding your car keys this morning. <laughs> now we know from decades of research that too little stimulation early on is bad for brain development. I show you here two PET scans. Now PET scans are measures of brain function. The brighter colors show more brain activity. And on the left is a PET scan of a normal kindergartner. And on the right is a PET scan of a child who was raised in a horribly uh, neglected environment. This is actually a PET scan from a child who was raised in a Romanian orphanage and was profoundly neglected early in life. And you'll notice that there are areas of his brain that show no activity at all. It didn't develop as a result of too little stimulation. Now this is a horrific example of too little stimulation and the untoward consequences of it. But the question we've had in our lab for some time is, what about too much? 
is it actually possible to overstimulate the developing brain or more uh, appropriately to inappropriately stimulate the developing brain in ways that are actually not beneficial but harmful? And this is important because we're technologizing childhood today in a way that's unprecedented. In 1970, the average age at which children began to watch television regularly was four years, like this cute little girl here. And today, based on research that we've done, it's four months. It's not just how orally they watch, but how much they watch. The typical child before the age of five is watching about four and a half hours of TV a day. That represents as much as 40% of their waking hours. Which brings us to baby Einstein. Now, many of you probably have not seen baby Einstein, but I will show you a random 20-second clip from baby Einstein day on the farm, and, and here it is. In that 20-second clip, there were seven scene changes, about one every three seconds. It's about the most exhausting day on the farm since John Steinbeck's Grapes of Wrath. <laughs> and of course, it's nothing like being on a real farm, right? Adults watching this find it discombobulating because your mind is trying to make a coherent narrative out of this, and there is no coherent narrative. It jumps all over the place. But babies aren't trying to make a coherent narrative out of it. They're not capable of doing that. It's all of that screen change, all of that stimulation that's keeping them actually engaged in the screen. So we've had for a while what we call the overstimulation hypothesis, which is that prolonged exposure to this rapid image change during this critical window of brain development would precondition the mind to expect high levels of input, and that would lead to inattention in later life. So you watch enough Baby Einstein day on the farm as a baby, and when you go to a farm as a school-aged child, it's boring. It's too slow. How come there's no sheep suddenly popping into my face? How come there's no marionette going back and forth? Why do I have to walk from here to there? That's the general idea, that you're conditioning the mind to that reality, which doesn't actually exist. And we, we tested this uh, some years ago, and what we found was that the more television children watched before age three, the more likely they were to actually have attentional problems at school age. Specifically, for each hour that they watched before the age of three, their chances of having attentional problems was increased by about 10%. So a child who watched two hours of TV a day before the age of three would be 20% more likely to have attention problems compared to a child who watched none. Now, what else did we find? We found that the more cognitive stimulation children uh, received, and we measured cognitive stimulation in terms of how often parents read to their child, how often they took them to the museum, how often they sang to them, we found that cognitive stimulation reduced the chances of attentional problems later in life. In fact, each hour of cognitive stimulation reduced them by about 30%. So if you will, these are two sides of the same coin. There are certain things that we can do early on in our children's lives that enhance their ability to pay attention, and certain things that we can do early on that actually impede them. Now, if our hypothesis was right, that it's based on the, the pacing of the programs, and you might imagine that what children watch actually is important. And so, content would be key. And I'll give you two examples of content to illustrate that point. The first is the Powerpuff Girls movie. 
the right mix of sugar and spice for a satisfying rush. I don't know how many of you have seen that, but here's a scene from that. Okay, so that was, again, you can see a lot of rapid sequencing. In fact, this was the first movie that was ever rated PG for non-stop frenetic animated action. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not making it up, that's the back of the box there. Now, I want to contrast that with something that I'm sure you're all very familiar with. Uh, really needs no introduction, but this is a clip from Mr. Rogers for you to watch. I'm fine, how are you? Good, thanks. I brought my television neighbor to see what a restaurant was like. Oh, I'm so glad. Can I show you a table? Certainly. I'm awfully busy today. One of the waitresses is ill. I see. So I'm sort of doing double duty. How about this? This is fine. Thank Grand. you very much. Sit down and I'll be... Chad, I'm buying a Mac. We were just talking about this right before the presentation. Chad said, have you thought about buying a Mac? And I said, well, you know, they're kind of expensive. And he said, you know, when I did my evangelistic meetings with my old PC, that thing would shut down about half of the time on me. And I said, you know what, sometimes my laptop heats up and, uh, and it shuts itself down. And that's exactly what just happened. So, um, but I believe that the Lord knows these things will happen. And the pro pro I'll tell you about the, re the rest of the clip was simply this. He, he shows that uh, Mr. Rogers was actually slower paced than reality. Uh, so <laughs> it... It does not condition your, your mind to expect such high levels of input like Baby Einstein and these other children's programs of today. But I also wanted to say something. The average age in here is not three. So, and most of you are, are probably not parents of little children. There's a lot of youth in here and you're, you're wondering, well, what, how, what effect does this stuff have upon, upon me, upon my mind and my brain? And if you missed the first session, then you missed all that. We talked about that. But whatever affects a small child's brain will also affect an adult brain, a teenage brain, and any aged brain. And the reason is, the, 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 what they call it brain plasticity. The brain is always changing, always altering its circuitry in response to new stimuli, new environments, new choices you make, uh, the amount of sleep you get, your diet. All of these things affect the brain until the day we die. The brain is always in a state of flux and always changing. And so what, what's harmful for a small child is also going to be harmful for us, or what's good for a small child will also be good for our brains as well. So that, those are some of the points I want to bring in that Dr. Christakis doesn't, he's not speaking to uh, at a youth conference, he's speaking to about, about children. But another thing too on, on Christakis's material, what, what he discovered later on in his research is they, they put a little mouse lab, a little uh, a, a laboratory where they had mice um, exposed to a lot of uh, media-like things, like flashing lights and, and lots of you know, exciting music. And, 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 and basically what they found was the more stimulation that mice were exposed to, the higher risks they took, 
And also, they found that these mice were, uh, were, were not learners. They, they would put a novel object out there and then an object that they had been used to for a time, so a new object and an old object, and they wouldn't go to the new object and learn about it and explore it like the normal mice would. So there's pretty interesting research coming out of Dr. Dmitri Christakis' uh, material. So just uh, take it for what it's worth for, from, from the, uh, the, the scientific point of view. We're here to talk about spiritual things, and so I want to give Chad a minute to just talk about some things on that. Things that's absolutely interesting about the brain. One of the things we talked about, for those of you who missed the last seminar, we talked about, part of it was about mirror neurons. Mirror neurons, when you, when you watch something, meaning they discovered through these macaque monkeys in Parma, Italy, that when a monkey watches the scientist take a peanut and put the peanut in its mouth, the brain of the macaque monkey responds in a similar fashion as if the monkey were the one actually doing the work of putting the monkey in its mouth. So our brain, uh, what did I say? You don't, they don't put monkeys in their mouth. Maybe some do, but hopefully most of them don't do that, right? But nevertheless, so you get the idea. Then, and I figured just from my own study of the Bible and from Spirit of Prophecy and History, that I'll bet, and I thought, I'll bet if you read something, if you read about a particular action, your, your mirror neurons would fire in a similar fashion just by the fact that you're imagining it through your imagination, through your reading. And they did do a, they did do a study on that in UCLA. They did, they did a study, and what they discovered was is that when you are reading a text, that the text that you're reading about, if you're reading about a specific action that somebody is doing within the text, that your brain responds as if you were actually doing the action that you're reading about. Now, think about that for a moment with me. So they said this seemed to promote uh, different things within your psyche. They said it seemed to promote empathy meaning you begin to empathize with the person or the individuals or the people that you're reading about, and it begins to change you. Now think about this. Now, we already know that by beholding we become changed. It's a biblical principle that we find in 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18 that tells us that by looking at the glory of God, we're changed into that image. And so think about this. Now, we know that, okay, yes, we can be distorted through the things that we watch. If we're watching evil, we, those things, you say, well, I may watch, I watch murder in a movie. That doesn't make me a murderer. No, it doesn't necessarily mean that you've murdered someone, but your brain is going through the actions as if those things, and that's why, like, like Scott said, it doesn't take a morally upstanding Seventh-day Adventist and make them a murderer. But what it does do is it makes a morally upstanding Adventist a little bit less moral and upstanding. Does that make sense? So it just drops the level. And it takes someone who comes from a broken home or a bad background or a, a not, not stable mental frame, it brings them to, they may already be unstable, and so it puts them over the edge. So it's all relative where it brings us to. Oh, it doesn't affect me. I'm not going to become some kind of, you know, serial killer. Probably not. But the fact is it still affects you negatively. But that's the negative. The positive is the things that you read, the things that you t take time to think about will actually change your character. It actually changes you, and this is a part of what we know as neuroplasticity. They did studies in the country of, uh, well, in, in Great Britain, in the city of London. And what they discovered was, because historically they believed that you were unchangeable, that your brain could not be changed. That what you were is the taste that you have, that's just what you are, and there's no changing that. 
and one of the several discoveries, one of which was in London cab drivers. What they discovered was very fascinating. They took London cab drivers, and the streets of London are very different than a city like, say, New York City. New York City, the streets are parallel and perpendicular. In, in London, though, on the other hand, we have streets that are just kind of curvy, not a lot of rhyme or reason. So the London cabbies actually have to take a test to prove that they can navigate the road system there in London. And what they discovered is that they went and they did a brain scan, probably uh, you know, it, just some form of scan upon the brain, and, like a PET scan. And what they discovered was very fascinating. Part of the brain that has to do with memory is called the hippocampus. Now the hippocampus, the left side has to do with your linguistic ability, the right side has to do with your spatial ability. Now that's kind of a simplification of it, but that's, those are parts of what the hippocampus has to do with in your memory system. Now what they discovered was is that the right uh, hippocampus of these of these London cab drivers was physically, was physically larger than other people in London. Now, we could account for that by one of two different things. Either these men were born destined to become cab drivers in London, <laughs> or what they thought about changed the physical structure of the brain. Which one of the two do you think it is? Obviously, it's the second one. And the fact is, your brain is changed by the things you choose to think about. And so you are changed by what you behold. If you behold the world, you become like the world. If you behold Christ in the Word of God, you become like Christ. Is that good news, yes or no? It's good or bad, depending on what we look at, right? And so it's up to you. Where will you allow your eyes to go? Where will you allow your mind to go? Uh, to go? And, and, and what things will you allow your mind to dwell on? That's the real question. That's the issue for us. And so I, I want to let you know, you can be changed. Even if you were born with certain tendencies, God can change you. God has made the human brain with the ability for what we call plasticity. The human brain can be changed. It can be transformed. You are not stuck. Several other studies have proved this. Now, uh, one of the studies they did that I found very fascinating was that in, in the country of uh, Spain, in Spain they did a study with blind teachers, teachers of the blind. And what they discovered was is that these teachers of the blind, they could see. But what they did is they, they covered their eyes, not just like this, because right now I can tell there's something shining in my face. But if I move here, I can tell it's darker, even though my eyes were closed at all, all along. But what they did is they covered their eyes so densely that no light could penetrate to their retina, making it back to the occipital lobe, the rear portion of the brain. And what they discovered is that within just two days, that these individuals that they could be, it began to change within their brain that they, could, they began to have a heightened sense of hearing, and so they could begin to distinguish different motorcycle brands from each other. But it went even further than that, that the occipital lobe, which is the rear portion of the brain, which typically has to do with your visual input, ocular, the things that you see, they discovered that within just two days as they scanned the brain of these teachers who were blindfolded, they were seeing teachers who were blindfolded so they couldn't see, within just two days, that part of the brain began to register their sense of touch, their tactile sense, and also their sense of hearing. The portion of the brain that historically was thought to be just for vision began to sense touch and it began to sense their, uh, you know, the things that they could hear. So the point is the brain, even if it was, it tends to do certain things, can be changed if certain stimuli is changed. So if we begin to stop beholding the darkness and we replace it with 
light, the brain will actually be changed through that process. Are we ready for? Okay, praise the Lord. Are you? Is it off? Well, that was all follow-up from part one. <laughs> We've got to get into this. We're going to be moving quickly, and I hope that you appreciate that, and we will, we will get through as much of this information as we can in the time allotted. Uh, but I, I do want to say, again, for the audio, I, 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 want, I want folks to know that everything we're covering here with the, with the slides, with the media on the brain material, is, is on the DVDs, and we won't be able to get to it all. A lot of it's on there that we're not touching, but we're hitting some of the high points. And this, the session we're covering now is called Meet the High priests of a new religion. We're talking about not just the influence on the circuitry of the brain, but how media control minds, worldviews, values. And I want to begin with a quotation, a scripture verse that has meant a lot to me as a teacher. I mentioned last time I teach Bible at Great Lakes Adventist Academy. And as a teacher, I, I, I really love the quotation, students should be thinkers not mere reflectors of other men's thoughts. Do you know that quotation? And you know what the spirit behind that quotation is? It's Colossians 2.8. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. As human beings, God has given us a freedom of our minds, a freedom of choice, of the will. And God does not want his children, his beloved free beings, to be controlled by another. That we should not be taken captive through the deceptive philosophy, the hollow worldview that is out there in our world today. Here's the opposite of that. This is from 2 Corinthians 10.5. It says, take every thought captive. Do you see how these two are contrasting? If we are in control as led by the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is self-control, we are able to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Jesus Christ because our brain is on, our frontal lobe is active. We have the reasoning powers that God has given us. And as led by him, in submission to him, we can take every thought captive and we can truly have free minds, not controlled by another man. But the opposite is true, Colossians 2.8. That there, there are agendas out there, this probably comes as no surprise to you, that don't have our best interest at heart, that don't have the, the, the interest of Jesus Christ and the truth of the gospel in mind, but a hollow and deceptive philosophy that is seeking to take us captive. That's what we're talking about this morning. I want to begin with a historical figure. I used to teach history, so I love history. Now, if, if that just put half of you to sleep in like a nanosecond, you're going to find this guy interesting. His name is Edward Bernays. How many of you have heard of Edward Bernays before? I've got a couple. All right. Edward Bernays, of course, is the founder of modern public relations. He's the founder of modern advertising, so you can blame him. <laughs> He's the guy that started it all. And in, back in the 1920s, this was when popular culture was really emerging in America, and, and the advertising movement was just going on fire in the 1920s. Now, of course, we've eclipsed that you know, astronomically now, but he was one of the big minds in that initial movement. He had a, a tremendous influence in his day. For example, he worked for uh, the U.S. government in, in propaganda for World War I. And then after that, the corporations approached him and said, we know that you know how to sway the minds of the masses, Mr. Bernays. Can you please come and work for us and advertise for us? One of those companies was the was cigarette corporations. So they came to, uh, to, to Edward Bernays and they said, Mr. Bernays, we have a problem. Women won't smoke in America and that's half of our potential client base, our sales. And how can you get women to smoke in America? They just won't do it. It's not ladylike in our culture 100 years ago. <clears throat> he says, hmm. He's the nephew of Sigmund Freud. He knows how the mind works. 
he knows how the mass mind works. And so he says, all right, what I'm going to do is he hired the suffragettes. Now, do you know your American history? Who are the suffragettes? Women's right to vote. And these ladies were very popular. They were looked up to by the women of America. They were marching for the women's right to vote. 19th Amendment. And, and Bernays hired them, and he had them hide a cigarette in the cuff of their blouse. He said, all right, ladies, here's what I want you to do. When you get to the climax of that parade, and all the media are watching, and, and people are, are, are ready to just cheer you on, take that cigarette out of the cuff of your blouse, light it, smoke it, and lift it up in the air like this, and he shout in unison, torches of freedom, torches of freedom. What does this look like? I'm standing with a torch in my hand above my head. It looks like the Statue of Liberty, doesn't it? So in the mass mind now, women smoking is associated with a true American ideal of liberty, with these popular celebrity women, and a popular cause of women's right to vote. And it was brilliant. Women started smoking in America because of Edward Bernays' genius. You might say that's evil genius, but it's genius nonetheless. And in understanding how that kind of thing works is fundamental to understanding the advertising culture of today. But I want to talk again about the 1920s. Here's a quotation from Bernays. This goes back almost 100 years. Listen to the kind of control they had. If we understand the mechanism and motives of the group mind, he says, is it not possible to control and regiment the masses according to our will without their knowing about it? That's chilling, isn't it? He goes on and says, the conscious and intelligent manipulation of the organized habits and opinions of the masses is an important element in democratic society. Now, that doesn't sound very democratic to me, to have people uh, manipulating our habits and opinions consciously and intelligently. But he believed that's important. In a free society, somebody's got to control the people. You don't have a, a, a tyranny. You don't have a dictatorship controlling the people. So we, the media elite, will d manipulate their habits and opinions. And we're going to do it intelligently. Listen to this, then. He says, those who manipulate this unseen mechanism of society constitute an invisible government, which is the true ruling power of our country. Now you might say, well, well, we live in a free country. We have freedom, and we do, to a great degree, have external freedom. But my question is, are our minds free? The invisible governing force that is governing us is not taking away freedom in the traditional classical sense of a tyranny. It's taking away freedom of our minds. He says, we are governed, our minds molded, our tastes formed, our ideas suggested, largely by men we have never heard of. This is from his book, Propaganda, page 37, the other one, page 71. And here you have it, admitting it. Back in the day, I guess maybe they were more honest about what they were doing. But one more quotation about the amount of power that he said they had in almost every act of our daily lives, whether in the sphere of politics or business, in our social conduct or our ethical thinking, we are dominated by the relatively small number of persons who understand the mental processes and social patterns of the masses. It is they who pull the wires which control the public mind. Now, when I studied this out as an unconverted person, as a teacher of political science and government, I would share these things with my students and say, look, we need to talk more than just about political freedom. What are you doing to make sure that you are free? That wasn't even a religious message for me at the time. How much more when we know that God has given us individuality and dignity and humanity, and he doesn't want any man to take that from us. 
How much more important is this message now that I understand it in a spiritual sense? Now, I want to share with you, if you heard, we're here for the last session, we love media. We think media is a great thing. Uh, I, I have on the screen a picture of an iPod, and actually, I got a new device here. This is obviously an iPhone. Many of you have one of those. I, I, I held out for a while, and finally, I, I said, you know what? This is going to be a valuable tool, and so I'm now a user of an iPhone, and this is a fabulous device. I've got the Bible on here. I listen to it on audio uh, as I'm going about my business, exercising. I've got Spirit of Prophecy books. Listen to things cover to cover. It used to just be the iPod. <laughs> One day, I was listening to my iPod, and I was listening to a book called Mind, Character, and Personality. Anybody read that book? That's a good one, Mind, Character, and Personality. Um, and, and I came across a quotation as I was listening to it, and I had to pause and, and rewind it and listen to it again. It really struck me, and I, I thought, I, I, was, I was wondering about it. Like, how is this quotation true? Here's the quotation. It's also from Signs of the Times, November 4, 1884. Through the channel of, what's that next word? Mesmerism. Now, what's that? That's hypnotism, okay? So through the channel of mesmerism or hypnotism, Satan comes more directly to the people of this generation and works with that power, which is to characterize his efforts near the close of probation. Now, who is using hypnotism? Satan. Now, that made me wonder. How is hypnotism one of Satan's methods? Why don't we use hypnotism in an evangelistic series to brainwash everybody into believing in the three angels' messages? Why don't we do that? It takes away freedom, right? It subverts their reason, and it's not going to convert. It's going to manipulate. And so that sort of level of control is in Satan's tool bag, not God's. So Satan uses hypnotic devices, and it also says near the close of probation. Now, when is that? That's right now. Does this puzzle anybody else? I was puzzled by this. How is Satan using hypnotism near the close of probation right now? I don't even know anybody that goes to a hypnotist. And I don't know anybody who knows anybody who goes to it. Maybe you know somebody, but rarely do I even meet somebody who's like, yeah, my brother-in-law goes to a hypnotist every week. It's just not that common today. But I believe this is an inspired quotation. This is prophetic about today. In 2014, Satan is using hypnotism. How is the question. It's not the traditional method. It is something else entirely, and Chad will explain that. So... How are people hypnotized? Actually, self-hypnosis. How does this actually happen? So this is a very interesting thing to note here. Notice this is taken from uh, the use of light and sound technology with hypnosis. So notice what it says here. Light and sound do the work for deep relaxation and a fraction of time of traditional methods by using specific frequencies of audio and visual input. So two things that you can use to hypnotize people are light and sound. Those two things mixed together, right frequencies, can cause hypnotism or a hypnotized state in an individual. So let's look into this a little bit more. So this is what happens, right? You say, no, that's not what happens, right? That's a little bit, you know, some graphic here. Yeah, right. Now think about this for a moment with me. When you watch television or when you watch... Have you ever driven by somebody's house or you're driving through a neighborhood at night and you look inside and for some reason the TV creates this blue glow in the house? Have you noticed that? And what do you notice taking place in that house beside there being a blue glow? It flashes. Or if you're in a house with somebody and they're watching TV and, and if you could just drag yourself for a moment to turn away from the television and you look at the human next to you, one of the things you'll see on their face is constant flashing light. 
It's an input of flashing light and sound. And these two things together bring your brain. We're going to talk about what happens in the brain when you do this. Kind of an interesting thing. Now, the brain has different waves ranging from, you know, these delta waves, theta waves, alpha waves, and beta waves. Now, interestingly enough, what do these things do? Beta waves are critical thinking waves. When you're actually contemplating, when you're thinking, it's like your moral filter is there. You have self-control. When you have critical thinking, at least you hopefully can move toward the direction of self-control. So this is what you have during this time period. But notice what you have when you're in alpha. Alpha waves are like new age meditation. Even witches understand this. They talk about that. They understand that they say their goal, a witch, is to get people into the state of alpha. So that is where you are in a slight hypnotized, suggestive state. And so that's like new age meditation. You're highly suggestible. It's dreamy. It's hypnotic as if you're not truly in a truly contemplating at that point. Now, I know there's something called contemplative prayer, contemplative prayer, but the fact is during contemplative prayer, you neither contemplate nor do you pray. It's actually shutting your brain down into a form of self-hypnosis. When I say contemplation, I'm not talking about Eastern contemplation or this new stuff that's coming into the church. I'm talking about true contemplating, thinking things through, not shutting your mind down. And so, but what happens is while you're watching television, you're actually slipping into these alpha states. That's especially, specifically, when you're having these constant scene changes. Constant scene changes. Not probably happening much at all when you're watching, what was his name? Mr. Rogers, right? I mean, it's hard to pay attention because you're, you know, you actually have to think during that. Um, psychophysiologist Thomas Mulholland found that after just 30 seconds of watching television, the brain begins to produce alpha waves, which indicates torpid, almost comatose states, rates of activity. Alpha brain waves are associated with unfocused, overly receptive states of consciousness. I should note that the goal of hypnotists is to induce slow brain waves. Alpha waves are present during the light hypnotic state used by hypnotherapists for suggestion therapy. Viewers automatically enter a trance state while watching television. Interesting, right? And so that's one of the reasons why the less the better. We're not saying you can never ever ever watch anything on television, but if you live off of television, you are living typically with most, most television, you're living in, a, in basically a state where your frontal lobe is not engaged. The spiritual portion of your brain is not engaged. So largely, you want to watch less and less in general. Now, Scott's going to come up and tell us another thing about a historical figure here. The guy in the middle of the screen's name is Ernest Dichter. He was probably the second most important in the history of advertising, next to Edward Bernays himself. And he founded an institute in the post-World War II era called the Institute for Motivational Research. He's the guy that, that coined the term focus groups, and he's very, very fundamental and instrumental in the advertising culture of today. And in his institute, they, they had a very interesting thing that was leaked out of this institute a number of decades ago. And it was a, a document that they used for prospective students who were going to come and learn from the media masters 
how to advertise, how to manipulate the masses. And this document reads very interesting along these lines of uh, what Chad was talking about. Read the following. It says the course, the, the, the course that they would teach you on how to advertise is an adventure into mental frontiers that challenge even the most stalwart individual. You'll learn how to slow thought waves and enter the alpha. So they've known this for decades. How to slow thought waves and enter the alpha. He goes, and other waves of the mind too. Techniques that will put your newly acquired secret knowledge to work for you. Initiation into the psychological concepts and manipulative stratagems of this art course often come as a shock to those naive individuals. 36% of all previous candidates dropped out and discussed within the first three days. So they're warning folks, look, you're going to learn how to manipulate people. If you're squeamish about that, don't apply. <laughs> squeamish types of individuals aren't suited for the psychological demands of this fast-paced, secretive business. So I appreciate the honesty when you read a, a, something like that. We are really trying to manipulate brainwave activity and our advertising in the Madison Avenue elite. Now it's not just that. When, when you look at a more modern example, as in the Youth Culture 101, Walt Mueller quotes an advertising executive saying the following, We've taken a page from Satan's book. Find a point of weakness and lust in every man, woman, and child and target that weakness to make them want to buy the product. Isn't that something? Now, if, if I had time, I would share with you this next clip because it's not just the advertisers. What's happening in Hollywood is something very, very similar. Uh, this, this is a clip by a uh, professional hypnotist. His name is Mark J. Ryan. And this whole clip is on the DVDs. For the sake of time, I'll just describe some of the things that he brings out in the clip. Uh, what, what he says is, is, first of all, he does not watch, now he's not a Christian, but he does not watch any uh, television at all anymore. Because he knows what the advertisers are doing. And they're advertising to you constantly, not just during the ads. He says he doesn't watch it because he says it gets in there and I'm even aware of what's happening. How much more for people who aren't aware of what's happening to them? Then he goes on, he talks about this film, Inception. And this film in particular was especially interesting for him to post this video on YouTube. As a professional hypnotist, he analyzes this particular film. He explains how this film actually took the viewer through a deep hypnotic experience and how hundreds of methods of hypnotism, other methods of programming were used to manipulate and influence the mind of the viewers of this film. But what's especially interesting to me is not just that this film did that. That's probably no surprise. Those of you who have seen it or are aware of what that film is, it's kind of out there and, and you probably figured it was kind of like, woo, with your brain. But huh, what's interesting is that he says all Hollywood studios are using hypnotic methods in the making of their films. So here we're talking about more than just what Chad talked about with the flashing of the screen. Every three seconds in theatrical entertainment, that screen is flashing with a new frame of reference change and that does lull the mind down into an alpha trance. But what Mark J. Ryan brings out is they are using more deep scientific methods of hypnotism than just the mere flashing of the screen, which could just be accidental. Uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of stimulation happening, keep your attention. But he says, no, they are trying to get in there. He believes that this is good because he's a hypnotist. He's like, it's so wonderful. They planted such wonderful things within you in this movie that are going to germinate in your life. And I'm going, what? They planted things? What are you talking about? I'm not sure I know or trust these people who are making these films. And they're not the enemy. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. We don't want to try and stir up some sort of culture war against Hollywood, but we don't necessarily need to subject ourselves to it either. So he says all Hollywood studios 
are using deep hypnotic methods, more so than just the screen flashing, alpha wave inducing um, uh, stimulation. We're talking about very, very significant methods of hypnosis that are being used. So pretty interesting testimony from Mark J. Ryan that Hollywood is doing it as well, not just the advertisers. Now, I, I'm going to tell you about another historical figure, Chad said. So here's the guy. This is Bertrand Russell. How many of you have heard of Bertrand Russell? He's a little more widely known. There's a few hands. He was an aristocratic philosopher in Great Britain, a uh, very, very elite guy. He's also coming from not a religious point of view. Uh, but he, he writes the following. Actually, before I give you this quotation, I'm a teacher. And I, I love the, the, the concept of, of minds acquiring knowledge through rigorous study and through individual thinking and critical thinking. Well, what's interesting is his comments on education are absolutely contrary to what you'll read in the book, Education. It's not children should be taught to be thinkers. What he talks about with regards to education is he says, in a scientific dictatorship, not like the communists where control is from the top down, but in, in, in a socially engineered society, he calls it a scientific dictatorship, there will come a point where the children are raised in state education from the time they're in the cradle right on up through adulthood. And he said the, the education system will be able to get them to the point the, the, the governmental system will be able to get them to the point where they will not be capable of thinking. We could tell them that snow is black and they would believe it. He says well, the, the methods will be used like that of the Jesuits. He says methods will be used to make it so that it will be impossible for these youth to be able to, for the masses to be able to rebel against, uh, against the aristocratic elite. It's just an interesting social uh, experiment that, that, that he described there. Um, he, he also said that through diet, and injections and injunctions, we can produce the sort of character in the young that is desirable to the elite. Now, he went on and on about education. Why am I telling you about education? Because as I was reading through his words on that, I was thinking, man, that must be like the number one propaganda mechanism in human society is the education system. But then he said this, it floored me. He says, perhaps the most important of all the modern agents of propaganda is the what? The cinema. Now, time out. This was about 50 years ago. I would put the music industry right next to that today. Now, you come to part four or part three after lunch and you'll see why. Don't just take my word for that. We're going to see how music influences. But right now we're on, we're on Hollywood. He says the, the most important uh, agent of propaganda is the cinema, leading to almost worldwide uniformity. The great majority of young people in almost all civilized countries derive their ideas of love, of honor, of the way to make money, and of the importance of good clothes from the evening spent in seeing what Hollywood thinks good for them. Brothers and sisters, has anything changed? That's exactly how it is today, isn't it? Why do we all talk alike, look alike, laugh at the same kind of jokes, act the same way? It's because we've been programmed. We've received a program that we are carrying out. And he says that's exactly what's happening in Hollywood. From, from a social critic standpoint, from a social engineer standpoint, Bertrand Russell, not from a religious standpoint, is saying this is what's happening. And, and, and he, he doesn't decry it. He thinks that this is okay. He says this then. I doubt whether all the churches and schools combined have as much influence as the cinema on the opinions of the young. And then he says this, the producers of Hollywood are the high priests of a new religion. And this is why the name of this session is Meet the High Priests of a New Religion. I want especially young people, because I know that the young people in this room value their individual free thoughts, because God has given you that. God has given you that privilege to be a human being with freedom. And here we have a different worldview. The high priests of a new religion, not God's religion. 
the high priests of a new religion, the Hollywood producers, seeking to influence us. Now, I want to say again, because I, I, there are so many things out there on media that are like, we need to change all the laws and we need to get, shut these people down. And that's not what this is about at all. Please don't think this is some sort of war on Hollywood and everybody out there is of the devil. No, this is not, not meant to stir something up like that. But what it is meant to do is help us be warned so that we don't need to take part in it. So I'm going to introduce to you some of the high priests of a new religion. And again, our battle is not against flesh and blood. Our battle is against the principalities and powers of darkness, Satan and his minions. So these human beings that I'm going to quote are not the enemy, okay? They are children of God. They are victims of this whole system. And so don't get all mad at them, but I do want you to be warned. I want to share, share some things with you from some of these Hollywood filmmakers. Now, before I do that, I, I, I want to finish Bertrand Russell's quote, actually, because this is fascinating. He says, the, the result of this Hollywood control system, those are my words, he says, the result is that any defects in the status quo become known only to those who are willing to spend their leisure time otherwise than in amusement. These, of course, are a small minority. Basically, almost everybody spends most of their leisure time in amusement, in entertainment. And these folks are at most times negligible. But he says there's, however, this, this certain instability about the whole system. In the event of an unsuccessful war, it might break down, and the population, which had grown accustomed to amusements, might be driven by boredom into serious thought. And what a scary thought, right? I mean, this has been, this has been the case for, for millennia. The Roman Empire sought to quell the masses and keep them in their place by giving them bread and... Circuses, yes, bread and circuses. And so the entertainment, feed them, get them, keep the people happy and keep them distracted so that they won't contemplate the more serious matters of life. And for us, those, those serious matters are not social and political so much as they are our spiritual walk and winning, winning the lost. But the, the quote still is very, very instructive. Speaking of instructive quotes, Joseph Stalin once stated, if I could control the medium of the American motion picture, I would need nothing else to convert the entire world to communism. That's the power of this medium. It's absolutely powerful. Now, the high priests of a new religion. One of them's names is one of their names is Paul Schrader. He's a screenwriter. He said the following: We are there. We Hollywood screenwriters are there to thumb our nose at your values. We don't care if you like us. We don't like you. People think that Hollywood has principles, morals, and values. It doesn't. Do you appreciate his honesty? I appreciate. I respect him for saying that. He said, look, this is what we're doing, and you Christians, by the way, the majority of Hollywood revenues come from proclaimed Christians. You guys who are coming to our films, and you're complaining about what it is on the moral level in our films, uh, basically, we're thumbing our nose at your values. We don't really like you, and we don't have your morals and values. I appreciate his honesty. Another high priest of the new religion here, we have David Putnam, a movie producer. He said, movies are powerful. Good or bad, they tinker around inside your brain. They steal up on you in the darkness of the cinema to form or, what's that next word? Conform. Romans 12, two, not, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. He says the cinema forms and conforms our social attitudes. In short, cinema is propaganda. Powerful quotation. Now, how about the founder of MTV? This one really, you want confrontation. You thought Paul Schrader's was pretty intense. Listen to what MTV founder Robert Pittman says. The strongest appeal you can make is emotionally. If you can get their emotions going, make them forget their logic, you've got them. Isn't that something? At MTV, we don't shoot for the 14-year-olds. We own them. 
So I don't, I'm not very good at using young people jargon. I'm a teacher. I try and keep up with it, and usually it just kind of it's funny. <laughs> but young people, you guys today are saying things like, it's this phrase that you say, you got owned, right? Did I get that right? Yeah, you got owned. He's saying, look, you guys are getting owned. We're owning you. And I'm going, wait a minute. Why do we have to subject ourselves to this? Why do we have to open our minds to the propaganda machine and become influenced by this system? They're admitting they are trying to own us, own you all. Uh, and if you're not 14, this applies to everybody, of course. But did you catch the thing about make them forget their logic, get their emotions going? If you were at the first session, you learned about the frontal lobe and the limbic system. Which one was the logical? Frontal lobe. Which one was the emotional? Limbic system. If you can turn off their frontal lobe and enhance it so they know exactly what they're doing to our, to our minds. Kevin Smith, a filmmaker, once said, I always like, like to think of it like I've got them sitting there. Whip a little message at them. Whip a little moral at them. Whip a little of what my view of the world is because that's what every good filmmaker does. How many good filmmakers? Everyone. So if you've risen to the heights in Hollywood where your movies are the ones being shown, then you are clearly uh, sharing your morals and worldview with people. And wouldn't you, by the way, if you were a filmmaker, wouldn't you want to share your worldview and values? I, I can respect that and appreciate that, actually. I don't agree with their worldview and morals and values, and I don't want to subject myself to it. But of course they're going to share their point of view through their art. That's what art is, right? It's a communication of some sort of worldview or philosophy or ideas. So uh, what is their ideas? What is their worldview? What is their philosophy? If you look at a study that the University of Texas did, they found that 2% of Hollywood actors, screenwriters, and filmmakers attend religious services on a regular basis. So this is not an environment that holds the same worldview as you and I. Am I attacking these people and saying they're bad people? No, they're human beings. Let's make sure to respect them. They're image bearers of God. But at the same time, we know the worldview coming through is not the same that we hold. Um, so that's good to know from the, from the studies. Now, what is, is it a secular worldview? Is it humanism? Is it atheism, agnosticism? What is the worldview predominantly coming through in Hollywood? What is the religious or spiritual uh, environment in the entertainment industry? I want to take you way, way, way back to the early decades of film in America. So you can understand a little bit about the genesis, the very origins of film, and then we'll look at some modern actors and actresses as well. I think you will find it is not a agnosticism that you find predominantly in the entertainment industry, but it is rather spiritualism. And I want to begin with uh, Rudolf Valentino. He was known as the Latin lover, and he uh, w had all sorts of films about uh, you know, sexually inappropriate things. Well, where did his films come from? Every night, Valentino's wife would hold a seance coming forth, calling forth help from the spirit world in her creative undertaking. Then, pencil and paper in hand, she would go into a trance and start writing. After her outpourings were typed up, they were brought to the set the next day and given to the director. Similarly, Mae West, another sexually inappropriate actress uh, from the 1930s, uh, had, had the same thing. Mae West received inspiration from psychic phenomenon. Her psychic recalls that she'd pace around the room saying, forces, forces, come to me and help me write a script. She would begin to hear voices and images as the plot was revealed to her. She, she would, excuse me, she would lie in bed in a trance-like state, dictating as the spirits entered. So we see at least two examples from the very beginning of these early films. They were not coming from the creativity of the, of the artists. They were, they were actually being channeled through the demonic realm. Now, if you look also at, at the subsequent decades, for example, Lucille Ball of the 1950s, that seems like an innocent show, right? I mean, that's not Valentino and Mae West with all their, ooh, like sexually out there stuff. I mean, this is just Lucy. Come on. It's no big deal. Well, interestingly, what do you see on the screen? 
It's an innocent show until they slide the seance scene into the show, right? So our guard is down and the devil inserts his material in. Well, how did she make the decision to play this part in this show? Quote, it was the spirit of actress Carol Lombard who guided Lucille Ball into taking a chance and accepting the offer to star in I Love Lucy. The glamorous comedian who had died in an airplane crash in 1942 appeared to Lucy in 1951. Because Lucille Ball accepted the spirit's urging to take a chance, honey, she made television history. Now, was that actually Carol Lombard that appeared to her? No, this was a demonic impersonation counseling Lucille Ball on her career moves. So in the early decades of film and television and the entertainment industry, we see spiritualism. Now about today, this is a film that I watched at an educational, Christian educational institution, and part of my history program was to watch The Color Purple with uh, starring Oprah Winfrey, and I subsequently learned, here's what she said about acting. This is how I see acting. I use my body to be a carrier for the spirits of those who have come before me. And again, I try to empty myself and let the spirit inhabit me. What do we call that from the Bible in one word? And this begins with the letter P. Possession, yeah. Now, that's a reality. That's a quotation from her that we have to evaluate, that we have to take account for and consider. But it's not just Oprah Winfrey. We look at other examples of this, and it starts to look pretty interesting. Peter Sellers said, acting is like being a medium and laying yourself wide open and saying, I want a character to inhabit my body, or I want a character to take charge of me so that I can produce what I hope to produce. Another example, Robin Williams said, there is also that thing, it is possession. So he uses the word. In the old days, you'd be burned for it. So this, he's talking about literal possession, literal spiritualistic things that they used to burn people at the stake for. He says, you really can become this other force. So Peter Sellers, you're, you're, you're laying yourself wide open uh, and having something else inhabit your body. Robin Williams says, it is possession. You really can become this other force. Um, Denzel Washington, another educational film, the movie Glory. It was a historical film. I watched it in my history program at the uh, Christian school I went to. And what's interesting, there was a powerful scene in this film that the critics just acclaimed. And they said, wow, he really knocked that one out of the park. How did you do it? Denzel Washington, and he says basically what I did was got on my knees and sort of communicated with the spirits. And when I came out, I was in charge. I couldn't have acted that. I couldn't have made a decision to play that part. So who was acting it? Well, the spirits apparently that he had communicated with before the scene began. That was on 60 Minutes of 2020, one of the two, I don't remember. And, and, and I, I, when I see that, I'm going, this seems like a pattern is forming here. When we look at Johnny Depp, he just said, I know I have demons. But I pause on that one and I go, maybe he's talking about issues from his past. Maybe he's talking about things in his life he needs to overcome. I, my demons, right? I know I have demons. But then the rest of the quote is quite something. He, he's not talking about issues. He says, I'm 30 different people sometimes. Now, am, am I going to make sure, am I, at this point, obviously I'm, not, I'm probably not going to watch you know, Denzel Washington movies, Oprah Winfrey movies, uh, Peter Sellers movies. I, I, that I think is a reasonable, uh, well-reasoned and balanced position to take. I, I shouldn't probably be watching a spiritualist on my screen while I'm under a, a hypnotic-induced uh, trance. But then, you know, what about the rest? Uh, how about the rest of Hollywood? How do we know really what's going on inside the entertainment industry? Feruza Balk gives us a very helpful testimony on this. She's an insider. She's top left there. She starred in a witchcraft movie called The Craft. And regarding witchcraft or spiritualism, she said the following. A lot of actors um, who don't mention their names, of course, are very much into this. How many did she say? A lot. That's enough for me. 
I don't need to go and study every single little nook and cranny and dirty corner in the entertainment industry. When I hear that quote, I'm done. It's kind of like I go to a buffet. Let's pretend, anybody else like to go to buffets here? Give me a hand in the air. There's my people. I love a buffet and I go there for the salad and the good food, right? And there may be some things on there that aren't that good, but I go to the buffet for the good things. This is the Hollywood buffet, okay? You go to the Hollywood buffet and you start selecting items and putting them on your plate, but then somebody from the restaurant from the kitchen taps you on the shoulder and they say, hey, that item you just put on your plate has rat poison in it. You're kind of like, what? There's rat poison in the food at the buffet? Weird. So you put that back on the, you're not taking that on your plate. You're not going to eat that one, right? Or you throw it in the garbage. Okay, but you're going to stay at the buffet because there's some good stuff here, right? There's, good, there's some good stuff. So I'm going to just not eat the rat poison. But then you start putting other items and somebody else taps you on the shoulder and they're like, hey, actually, that one, that one, that one, and that one also have rat poison in them. And you're going, really? Man, like, okay, I want to stay because I'll take my chances with this because there's only like five or six examples. Come on, don't make a big deal out of it. There's plenty of good stuff in here. I'm not going to be extreme. I don't want to be one of those kind of Christians, right? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay. And so I try and find some good stuff here. But then somebody taps you on the shoulder and says, hey, I'm from the kitchen, I'm from the inside, I know what's happening in the food, and I'm here to tell you a lot of the buffet is filled with rat poison. At that point, I'm going, I'm not taking my chances with this, right? I'm setting my tray down, I'm going to go find a new buffet. I'm going to go find a new restaurant, because there's so many good things out there. Good media, good books, the Bible, all these things that we can be consuming, and we don't need Hollywood stuff anymore. We don't need to go to this buffet any longer. But actually, it gets even more strong. The case gets even more strong, because somebody else taps you on the shoulder and says, hey, you know what, the whole buffet is filled with rat poison, because Mark J. Ryan tells us, he's a professional hypnotist, he says, look, all the Hollywood studios are using these methods. All of them. And, and, and you remember Kevin Smith's quote, every good filmmaker is whipping their morals and, and values at the unsuspecting viewer while they're under this altered state of consciousness. So at that point when I know the whole buffet is so laden with rat poison, why do I need to stay any longer? A, a, a little story actually will help, will help illustrate this. Actually, I don't have time for the story. I'm going to bring that in later. Chad's going to close with a text from James 4, verses 7 to 8, and then we will, we will wrap up for the, for the morning. You may know the text there in James chapter 4, verse 7 and 8. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. You know, what it comes down to is we want to use the brain that God has given us. And, you know, we, we many times think our culture the way we are is because I've chosen to be this way. I've picked my group of people. But to a large degree, we become what people have chosen us to be to a degree. And God is calling us to use our minds. He wants us to be thinkers, not just reflectors of other man, men's thoughts, right? He wants us to be able to think. He wants us to be able to look to the Word of God. And it takes time. As we spend time with God in His Word, as I stated early, earlier, initially you don't like the Word of God. But as you spend time and it begins to change you, it deepens your understanding. You have to contemplate. In the beginning you read and you can't even contemplate if you haven't been a reader. But spending time in God's Word, it strengthens you. It draws us near and as it says submit yourselves therefore to God saying father I want to follow you because the funny thing is the Bible tells us know ye not that to whom you yield yourselves servant to obey 
His servants ye are to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness, Romans 6.16. So we are a slave to one or the other. But the funny thing is, is the only true freedom we can gain is through Jesus Christ. That when we follow him, he gives us, he makes us into what we were created to be. And so friends, I want to challenge you. Submit your entire life to Jesus. Spend time in his word. Draw nigh to him and he will draw nigh to you. Let's close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your love. Father, we used to be called the people of the book. Because when people met Adventist, they knew these people know the word of God. That was a given. But Father, I fear largely we as a, as a young people have just become like everybody else. We don't know the Bible. We maybe have it on our iPhone, so we think we know it, or we know some Bible stories. But Father, my desire is that we would, we know, we, 1 Peter 1.23 tells us that we are born again by the word of God. Father, that we're changed by it. And the fact is, if we don't spend time in it, we're, not, we're, we're just conformed to the image of the world. And so my prayer is, Father, that we'll spend time in your book, the book you've given us. Initially, we don't like it. But as we're transformed by it, as we're born again by the word, as your Holy Spirit enters into us and changes us as we read your word, Father, I pray that once again we'll become the people of the book, that we'll know it, that it will change us, and that we can use it to be a changing force to the lives of other people in this world. Thank you for your love. In the name of Jesus, amen. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, please visit us online at www.gycweb.org.